Hello and welcome to episode 205 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. It's going well. It's the 1st of March and it's been a very long month. Yes, this month has been <laughs> particularly long and it's only been like 16 hours so 16 far. hours, yeah. Yeah. We got a lot to talk about and it's been a very long week. And I'm also in the weird get all of the things done now because I'm I'm going on vacation mode, which I guess makes it like even more frantic and, and stressful. And me too. Are we both going away at the same time next week? Are we allowed to do that? I hope space time or whatever doesn't collapse in on itself. But yeah, we're, we're both going to be gone at the same time, which is why we're recording the podcast today. And if you, dear listeners, are lucky, you will be listening to this a bit earlier than you normally do because I want to try and get the podcast published so that I don't have to do that well on vacation. But if we can't do that, then so be it. I will get it published up Friday morning. Yeah. Hopefully, we have some good fights. Mine, I yeah. know, is on what I think is your least favorite wide-body aircraft these days. So, sorry about that. But I know you booked one of your, your favorite wide-body aircraft, and unfortunately, uh, schedule changes struck. Wait, wait, what? I'm flying on a 787-8, which you personally oh, despise. Oh. I don't despise the 787 You say terrible things about it and not, not particularly wrong, but <laughs> you also booked a 787-10, which you think is a particularly lovely aircraft and ended up getting a 787-9, which is just kind of, it's the middle one. So what happened is, no, I had the nine going out. It's been the nine all along. But I had the 10 coming back, which I booked specifically so that I could try the 10 because I have not yet flown a 10, but it got switched to an eight. Here's hoping oh, that they okay. magically I switch see. it back. Yeah. But no, I'll take it either way. I'm, I'm excited. I'm flying. It's domestic, but it, it's, I think, long enough to, to get a feel for the, the seat and all that fun stuff. I'm flying United's. Polaris business, but it, it's called first because it's domestic, whatever. And then on the way back, flying whatever they call the premium economy, premium premium plus, is that what it's called? Premium plus, yes. Not to be confused with premium select or, or premium economy right. American. I'm excited to to try that out. Try both of them because I've never flown either product. That's so nice. that, that'll be a good time. Yeah. And I'm going on vacation. The first vacation without kids. Wow. Good luck. I know. So thank you very much. And I'll let you know how everything goes uh, next week. You're on the 787. Where are you going? You're going a bit further afield. I am going a bit further. But you know, with the jet stream these days, I don't know. Those westbound flights in the US have been taking in eternity these days. But That's yes, true. I'm, That's true. I'm on uh, JAL going out to Narita in Tokyo next week, which I'm very excited about on one of the last, if not the only airline still flying the 787 in the originally intended configuration in economy of 242, none of this 333 mm. nonsense. So I am very, very excited for that. I am hoping that the the schedule gods do not swap that out for a 777. We, we have that on the way back. But yeah, I do believe JAL is the last remaining airline in the world to be flying the, the 787 in that original configuration. So that'll be a nice experience, I hope. I do love a good two seats along the window. And I hope you do not fall victim to the operational swaps. I hope not. I hope not. But even if I do end up on a 777, it's still JAL. So it's still JAL. Yeah. That's a very good way of looking at it. 
It is. So we've got a lot to talk about this week and not a lot of it is great news. So we've broken the, the show into three parts as we sometimes do. We're going to talk about all of the bad things that happened first. Get that out of the way. Lots of discussion to be had and, and a bit of analysis. And then we're going to talk about things that happen, things that exist, things that we are neither gay or neon. And then we'll the talk neutral. about some good news to kind of round out. To, yeah, the, we're, we're stuck in neutral on those. And then we'll talk about some good news to close out the show and, and to close out the week. So let's dive into the bad news. The FAA is investigating what it has termed a close call in Boston. That is the the FAA's statement says that the FAA, I'll read the statement. The FAA is investigating a close call between a Learjet and a JetBlue flight Monday night at Boston Logan International Airport. According to a preliminary review, the pilot of a Learjet 60 took off without clearance while JetBlue Flight 206 was preparing to land on an intersecting runway. So the pilot of the Learjet was taxiing out for departure and was told to line up and wait on runway nine. The JetBlue flight, which was an Embraer E-190, was landing on runway four right. Those two runways intersect basically at the touchdown point of both runways. So the Learjet should have been well clear of the landing the landing E-190. E-190 should have landed, rolled out, gotten off the runway, and then the Learjet would have been cleared to depart. They never lined up and waited. They lined up and hit the gas. Lined up and left. Lined up and left, yeah. Yeah. It's interesting to see here the FAA use the term close call. This is not media hyperbole that we often see media saying or mainstream media saying close call when in reality the aircraft were like miles apart or something like that. This was truly and legitimately a close call and it was close enough and interesting enough that the FAA got ahead of it and actually released this information in its initial press statement saying that the pilot of not the JetBlue flight, what was it, the citation you said it was? Learjet. Learjet. Yeah, Learjet 16. The, yeah, they affirmatively said the pilot of the Learjet was not cleared to take off. They were cleared to line up and wait. That's not usually a level of detail you get in an immediate acknowledgement from the FAA. Usually they say there was a, a runway incursion or something happened and they will be yeah, we're investigating. investigating they got out ahead of this probably because there have been an odd number of these close calls, near incidents happening in the US aviation space recently. So it did feel like the FAA was trying to get ahead of this one saying, hey, this wasn't us. This was a pilot right, screwed right. up. <laughs> this was this guy or you know or, or woman hit the gas when they weren't supposed to. So we have the data for both flights in its entirety and and I crunched the numbers. So the runway intersect when the Learjet is crossing through the runway intersect so there's a potential hazard. The JetBlue flight is approximately 565 feet away. Again, remember that that's from point where the GPS is measured on each aircraft. So they, they could be closer, they could be farther based on you know, what position of the aircraft it was, but about 565 feet. At their closest, they were 531 feet apart, but that was when the Learjet was already clear of the intersection. So they could have, you know, passed 
safely at, at that point. But that is still, I, I mean, like like Jason said, you know, oftentimes with the media, you know, they were three miles apart. I could see the other plane. We were way too close. No, this was in fact an incident where things were very close. Yeah, I mean, the E-190 itself is only 118 feet, 11 inches long. So this is roughly, give or take, five aircraft lengths away. That is not much in the grand scheme of time and space. So any any particular delay removed from this flight, if it were three seconds quicker at some point, if the wind was slightly faster, this could be a very different conversation. And that the sequence of events seems to be from what we can transcribe from live ATC is that the air traffic controller at Logan did issue a go-around command to JetBlue, and thankfully they were able to not only hear that, but act on it. But even if they didn't, and they did continue to land and roll down the runway, they most certainly would not have collided. But damn, was it close. It would have been real close. Yeah, they would not have, but it would have been real close. Um, Yeah, so we'll hear more about I don't know if we find out like results of what happens to pilots who who bust regs like this but they didn't stop they hit the runway they lined up with the center line and then hit the gas yeah. there was no waiting there was lining up and there was taking off there it's was no waiting of any kind critical error but one I I do kind of understand how that happens it, it's a high stress environment a lot going on checklist paperwork distractions listening to the audio and the difference between processing in your brain, line up and wait and cleared for takeoff, I guess it, it could you could conceivably make that mistake. It happens. Hopefully this isn't the the end of this particular pilot's career, but I, I would certainly think there's some remedial training at minimum that's going to be delivered. Yeah. One would hope. This one was in fact close. Late last week the NTSB announced it was opening up an investigation into a loss of separation and runway incursion in Burbank. This one involved a Mesa Airlines CRJ-900 operating for a regional airline for American, and then a SkyWest ERJ-175, which was operating for United. And what happened was, is the, the SkyWest flight was departing. The Mesa flight was arriving and the SkyWest flight took a bit too long to get going. And then once it got going, the Mesa flight decided it was going to go around. They didn't like how things were looking and, and they went around, which is basically exactly what should happen. Then things get a bit interesting because on the climb out, and, and if you're familiar with the Los Angeles area and Burbank in particular, there are areas of high terrain, mountains, and it's bad if you fly into a mountain. So Thank they you, try yeah. not to do that. I know. It, it, we're starting with the basics here. So both aircraft are making a left turn in order to not fly into a mountain or to ensure that they're clear of the mounts. And in that turn, the aircraft received a TCAS resolution advisory. So the aircraft, the TCAS activated and said, okay, you you need to climb, you need to stop your climb. And so the Mesa aircraft climbed, the SkyWest aircraft stopped this climb and actually descended a little bit. The resolution only lasted a, a short time because they were in fact already starting to move away from each other. So this is not good, but 
this, I think, is one of those where it falls into the could have been bad a few steps later versus what we just talked about in Boston, where this was already very, very bad. You know, TCAS is designed to do exactly this. Yes. And the pilots responded exactly the way they were supposed to. Yes. Thankfully, TCAS it was created and installed on virtually every commercial aircraft of this size for this exact purpose. And it did what it was supposed to do and is a level of technology in place that talks or I guess interacts directly with the pilots on board the aircraft. So when TCA, a TCAS traffic collision avoidance system, yeah. is it? System. Ah. System, thank you. Yep. Basically, what that does is it uses the positional data or the inertia data of the aircraft to see where they're going, where in, in space 3D they are to keep aircraft apart from each other. And when it detects that there is a, a possible conflict, it will directly tell the pilots of one aircraft to either climb, descend, or stop doing everything. Basically, just fly level, and it will issue yep. the opposite to the other flight crew. So it will tell them, if it tells the crew of flight A to descend, it will tell the crew of flight B to either not do anything or ascend. In this case, this system speaks is onboard the aircraft. The two aircraft communicate back and forth with each other, and they give the pilots directly the information of what they need to do at that moment in time, which for something like a runway incursion or, or something being on the runway that's not supposed to, that information actually goes to air traffic control rather than the pilots themselves. So there's a a layer of added. Well, it's, it's a separate system. Yeah, these are completely different systems. I mean, what what TCAS was designed to do is to do that and only that. It, it is not involved in anything regarding what's happening on the ground at an airport. There are systems for that called, I think it's ADSEX, that monitors ground traffic and will issue an alert, but that alert goes to air traffic control, who might miss it, might be busy, the frequency might be blocked. So there's definitely seemingly like there's some room for the technological layers of safety we have in place to be communicated directly to the pilots for even quicker resolution of what could be how they could avoid a dangerous situation because it, it seems to work quite well with TCAS. You need those like the brake prompt inside the little red rectangle that blinks at you on some cars. Mm-hmm. Yep. It, it detects you that you're that about for... to do something stupid and it says, hey, stop it. <laughs> break. Stop yeah, it. they could get that from the ground. So this one, the NTSB is investigating. We'll learn more in due course, but I did want to talk about it because there was a, a TCAS RA. The third, well, this is actually the first accident we're discussing today. This happened on the 24th of February, and this was a Guardian Flight Pilatus PC-12 that was operating as an air ambulance out of Reno. They were headed for Salt Lake City, and they were climbing through 19,400 feet when they began descending and then descended rapidly. So the we, we've talked about the vertical rate that's sent via ADSB data versus what the actual vertical rate is, because the the ADSB data sends a vertical rate per frame in feet per minute, but it's not actually how fast the aircraft is going. It because it's not over a minute, and it's based on kind of an internal calculation. So if you look at the rate that this aircraft was descending, and I hesitate to use the word descending, more like dropping out of the sky, it goes from you know, zero, it goes from climbing to at about 1,300 feet 
per minute to descending at about minus 500 feet per minute. And then it picks up from there over the course of a minute, minus 1500, 1800, minus 2500, minus 6500, minus 7500. And the last value we have was minus 32,640 feet per minute. And as we know now from the NTSB investigation, the aircraft did suffer an in-flight breakup. The last data that we have is at 11,000 feet, uh, about one minute after the aircraft began descending. This is not a good situation. No, that is a sad story. In any way. And so we'll, we'll wait for the NTSB investigation to, to learn more because obviously the data cuts out. The NTSB has said that based on where they found wreckage, the aircraft did suffer an in-flight breakup. But that's really all that we know at this point. And, and we'll wait to read more on the NTSB investigation and, and hopefully hear more soon with their preliminary report. Then there's a weird one. A Scandinavian flight just forgot to slow down? Yeah, there's some interesting back and forth now on what did or did not happen with this particular aircraft. But the Aviation Herald published, I guess you would call it a, a post about Scandinavian sure. flight SK681 and A320neo from Copenhagen to Rome. Basically, and again, these facts are now quite disputed, but they were saying that it approached with the gear extended flaps and slats retracted at about 230 knots over the ground when they initiated a go around it at altitude, lowest altitude of 150 feet. That would be oh, more than 100 knots over what would the, the actual landing speed should be for that particular aircraft, let alone seeing that the flaps and slats were not extended at all. That, that doesn't really make any sense. Apparently, the aircraft climbed to 3,000 feet, positioned for another uh, another approach on 16 left, and landed safely with flaps, slats, and gear extended about 10 minutes after the go-around. But there is a lot of back and forth about what actually happened here. Ian, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, calibrated altitude versus actual altitude on the site. So as we've discussed multiple times, and perhaps we need to, to spend more time on this given all of the- Given the comments the on the site, we, yes, we well, do. Well, there's that. So the altitude sent from the aircraft as part of the ADSB frame is calibrated to standard pressure. So it's calibrated to 1023.25 hectopascals, which translates to it's like two nine or nine or two inches of mercury. And basically, that's the pressure value that's used for the barometric altitude above the transition level. So that once aircraft are clear of all obstacles, it makes more sense for them to all agree how high they are up in the sky. It doesn't matter if you set that value to any number. As long as that number is the same for all aircraft, the aircraft agree what they're at. You could call them flight levels A, B, C, D, E, F, G, doesn't matter. As long as the value is all calibrated the same, the aircraft know that they're flying on that particular level. You can call it whatever you want, and then they won't fly into each other. And you can safely space aircraft and things like that. Below that transition altitude, it's important to know you're not going to fly into a mountain. So you need to use a local value. And that local value 
is dependent upon weather conditions, elevation, temperature, and changes day to day, minute by minute, hour by hour. And that is displayed to the pilots, but it's not sent as part of the ADSB frame. So there can be, and we haven't even, so there can be a, a large discrepancy between the calibrated altitude at lower levels and the actual level. Then there's the fact that neither of those altitudes tell you how high above the ground the aircraft is, because that has to take it into account the fact that both of those altitude values are altitude values above mean sea level, which is fine if the local area is at sea level. But if it's not, you have to take into account the the elevation of the of the surrounding terrain. So there's a lot of calculation to go from the standard altitude reported in ADSB values down to what's reported or what's actually happening on the flight deck because the the flight deck the pilots are getting much more information. That was the unexpected altitude lesson for the day. Yeah, I didn't, put you I didn't on the think spot. I was doing that one. You nailed it. Good stuff. I can do my job. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, that's great. I'll uh, alert well, Frederick. Why is that important, Jason? But it is important because if you look at the playback on uh, this Flight Radar 24 site you may have heard of, you'll see that the uh, the calibrated altitude looks very scary, that they were at 150 feet at a ground speed of 239 knots. But actually, we also report the GPS altitude, which is more like 900 feet, which is a little under their actual probable decision altitude. And right at that altitude, they, they went around, they reconfigured, and they landed safely. So I guess this is less of an event of like, oh my God, what happened here? These pilots were crazy. And more so of a, well, maybe you should pause and look at all the facts and, and know all of the data before you go out and uh, accuse someone of doing something because the, the comments on this page are uh, a bit of a dumpster fire. But it is something we wanted to bring up anyway because you will almost undoubtedly hear about this somewhere, somewhere else. There you go. We'll just move on from there. Yeah. Oh, and the flight landed early. There you go. Yeah. Even scheduled the arrival time, 1023, landed 1021. So uh, even with the go around, they landed early. Literally, there you go. no one even knew on board, I'm sure. <laughs> So Boeing has paused 787 deliveries again. This is a weird situation because Boeing's being very cagey about it and so is everybody else. But from what we can gather, there was a documentation issue with components that are manufactured by Spirit Aerosystems, which manufactures fuselage components and among other things, including the pressure bulkhead. And... Boeing has termed this an analysis error. Spirit Aerosystems says, we can't say that yet. We've given Boeing two years worth of documentation. We're not sure if it was an analysis error. Everyone's looking into it. So it sounds like some numbers need to be crunched. Some computers need to be computed. And then this will eventually sort itself out. But not great for 787 deliveries to be on hold again. No, but at least this is, I guess, on the shoulders of Spirit Aerosystems right now and not some sub, sub, sub little contractor that may only make one little rivet of some little part. This is Spirit Aerosystems. They're the ones, I believe, that make the 737 fuselages, the greenies that we see transported from Wichita all the way up to uh, the Puget Sound. So 
I would expect this would get resolved, at least the paperwork side. If it is just legitimately a paperwork issue, this will probably get resolved quickly. But we'll take a look back at this in 12 months and then see if I'll eat those words. I hope we don't have to wait that long. But we'll keep on top of it to see when the next 787 goes home. Viva Air in Colombia has been player to bankruptcy and merger and all sorts of other machinations. But this week, that all got blown up by the fact that Colombia's Civil Aviation Authority has not ruled on the merger yet and is continuing to hold up approval of the merger between Viva Air and Avianca. And because of that, Viva just said, we're done. We're shutting down. That's not great. We're suspending operations, suspending all operations, and we can't continue on in, until we get this approval. I mean, that's not great. No. And as we know, more often than not, once an airline suspends for a financial reason, they typically don't come back. Or however they do come back is in a drastically different way. Viva was a, a pretty substantial part of that nation's aerospace industry. So it's quite shocking just to see Viva Air just go bust one day in the middle of these negotiations as Avianca itself pivots to becoming a low-cost carrier from previously its full-service history. So it's very interesting and I think pretty unexpected. Yeah. So the merger, it's definitely had some bumps along the way. Columbia Civil Aviation Authority has objected to the deal. They've reopened processes. They've thought of various issues, shall we say, with the process that has has gone on, perhaps some shady dealing. And so there's been a lot of friction there. Other airlines are interested in buying Viva, Latam, JetSmart. There have been other airlines that have wanted to buy Viva. So this whole thing is just a bizarre fiasco, I think, is the the easiest description to give. But hopefully, this gets cleared up rather quickly. Whoever wants to buy Viva can, and they'll all move on from this. But it's, I feel terrible for the passengers who are, you know, no fault of their own, are now stuck wherever they may be stuck. Yeah, there's only so much capacity in a country like Colombia to rebook passengers onto. And the Avianca, there might be options on Avianca through other South American cities or countries even, but that's going to be a tough one to get all those people rebooked. They operated or were scheduled to operate 94 flights today, all on high-density A320neos or COs. I think they're COs. COs. That's a lot. These hold 188 passengers apiece. So let's, let's do the math. 94 <laughs> times 188. That's 17,672 passengers theoretically maximum today displaced in just the Colombian aviation system. So that's a lot of people to reaccommodate somehow. Yeah. Latam, for their part, and Avianca have both said that they are adding flights in order to help take care of Viva Air passengers, which is you know certainly- Yeah, nice there's only so much they could add, of course. Right. Right. Okay. That's the bad news. Now for the- This could be good news. Let's start with- we, Last week, we talked about Qantas's premium cabin release for their Project Sunrise flights, where we said, okay- you know, the nice, nothing earth shattering, groundbreaking, just very nice, fine. 
This week, Lufthansa held the event to end all events, it looked like, in Berlin to unveil its new Allegris cabin that will be first coming to the H350 and then to other aircraft as well. It includes a brand new first class, business class, premium economy, and economy. I guess, do we start with the premium economy and economy and just get that out of the way? Yeah. Well, if you're an economy, there's nothing here for you. There is nothing new moving on. But before we touch on that, okay. I, I just wanted to mention that apparently irony is dead in Germany because host, <laughs> Lufthansa hosting this event in Berlin is just all sorts of ironic because Lufthansa famously has zero intercontinental service from Berlin. All of their long-haul flights go out of Frankfurt or Munich. So why this event was held in Berlin, I don't know. Whatever. And one more point, the <laughs> new Allegris cabins will actually, I believe, be first introduced on the 787-9, in oh. quotes, before the end of 2023, My while apologies. the A350-900 will be first introduced to the new first class in 2024. Of course, all of these numbers are well, they're not up in the air. They're not yet up in the air because, I don't know, maybe Boeing doesn't deliver these aircraft in, by the, before the end of 2023. Anytime an airline these days says before the end of something, it almost certainly means after the end. So maybe next year. But let's skip right past the economy because there's absolutely nothing new to discuss. It's a seat. It'll be fine if you get a good deal. Skipping straight past that to premium economy, Ian, have you ever flown in a premium economy seat with a fixed back shell? Yeah, actually I have. And do you enjoy it? I didn't find it to be one way or the other. Oh, okay. That's nice. I hate them. But <laughs> if you are a fan of Lufthansa's current premium economy, or pretty much most, if not almost all premium economy seats these days, you know that it's basically just a nice first class style reclining seat. But these will be fixed Domestic back US shells. First class. Yes. Fixed back shells like we saw on Cathay and I think China Airlines, as it were, the seat doesn't actually recline. It just kind of pivots forward and gives you the illusion of reclining. I personally hate that. I, I do not like that. Though the seat seems well-appointed overall. There's a wireless charging in, in premium economy, it looks like, which I think might be a first. So they look nice, but nobody is here to hear about premium economy or economy. This is all about <laughs> business and first, or excuse me, it's not just first class, it's first class suite plus or something along those lines. Yes, first class suite plus. The point I'm trying to make here is this product is extremely segregated, complex, difficult to understand. Your typical individualized. Oh, highly customized for retailing mm. enhancements, but <laughs> Most business class cabins these days, you'll have maybe one or two types of different seats to pick from. Maybe it's that kind that has like the throne seat on Swiss comes to mind as opposed to the rest of the seats that are not direct aisle access. But Lufthansa will not have one, not two, not even three different types of seats in business class. They will have seven different types of business class seats in one cabin. Do you want to know the name of all of them? Give it to me. Okay. Number one. Suites in the first row. These are double suites inside, single suites by the window. Number two is extra space seats. They describe that as unique, spacious single seat with extra work surface. Number three is window seat with high degree so of privacy. So that's the throne. That is the throne, I believe, yes. Okay. Number three is window seat with a high degree of privacy. That rolls Ooh. right off the tongue. Number four is seat with extra long bed. Okay. 
Number five, privacy window seat with baby bassinet. Number six is double seat in the last row of business class. And rounding out the list at number seven is classic business class seat. Seat we all know and love. So it's a lot to take in. But beyond that, it looks like a very nice cabin. There's something for everyone. Some interesting things here. Heated and cooled seats. That is particularly interesting. Heated seats are not super common, but they are out there. But cooled seats, they have my attention with that. I am so excited about cooled seats. I get so hot yes. on an airplane. Yes. And this has been something that we've, we've seen at industry trade shows kicked around as a concept, but it, it's actually something that's become commonplace in a lot of even mid-range cars in the US. You'll yeah. have heated seats and you also have ventilated seats. And that's just something we've gone away from in modern aircraft, you don't even get the air gaspers above your seat. So to reintroduce that as a cooled seat, I am all for that. That is amazing. I hope this pressures other airlines to do that because I know when I fly JAL next week, it's going to be stiflingly hot on that aircraft and there aren't even personal air vents. So this is great. I do love that particular feature. Forget everything else. That's the cherry on top for me. Excellent. And then we come to the first class cabin. Oh, yeah. It's basically unattainium <laughs> for most people. You will probably never sit in it. It is quite a step up from business class as we know it on Lufthansa today. Kind of reminds me a little bit of Air France La Premiere where they have a sweet door, which isn't really like thermoplastic or anything like that. It's like a flexible fabric thing, which is pretty interesting. It looks really nice. It has like a bed next to the seat, I believe, unless I'm misremembering. Let me bring that nope, rendering nope, up real quick. Right. Yeah, that, that's interesting. That harkens back to the old Lufthansa first class seat on the uh, 747s, I believe, where there was a bed next to the seat. So you didn't have to convert your seat into a bed. The bed was right there next to you waiting. So that's pretty cool. Wait, are you talking about Qantas or Lufthansa? Wait a minute. No, I'm getting the things confused. Yes. Sorry, they do not offer a bed next to the seat, but it converts into a double It converts bed. into one. That is well, what the middle one does. The, the middle, middle one, one does. Yeah. So, of course, it's yeah. not just one bit first class. There's different types of first class seats. And the middle one converts into a double wide bed, which is pretty cool. It's really wide. I will almost certainly never fly on this, but maybe someone listening here will. I don't know. What's interesting to me is it looks like so there's one A, I assume, and, and one K on the other side of the aircraft, and then one D and E are in, in the middle of the aircraft. And that's a double suite. And it doesn't. It doesn't look like there's a way to make that a single suite. I think it's just a double suite no matter what. And so I guess the question becomes, do you have to have two people to book it? I would hope not. Can you book it? I mean, do you have to buy two tickets? Like, that's what's interesting to me is like how that's all going to work out. Or can you, you know, have it like right before, right before takeoff? Like, hey, can I have the middle one to sleep? Like, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Well, That's I'll have to figure out on how they sell this thing because it is very Well, when I win the lottery, I will try and fly it. All right. Because it sounds like that's what it's going to take. Yep. All right. Let's move on to – this just is confusing to me. It sounds like – so what's happening is Superjet International, which was the original joint venture between – the Italian aerospace firm Leonardo and Russia's United Aircraft, they're trying the Superjet International joint 
venture, which used to have UAC but can't anymore because of sanctions, they're trying to get UAC out so that they can have a UAE firm come in, take UAC's place, then make more super jets. Which begs the question no one asked for. Why would that happen? Nobody wants this aircraft outside of Russia. That that has proven there are entire airlines that have crumbled and disintegrated because the SSJ was such a turd of an airplane. I'm talking about Interjet from Mexico, if you're not familiar. But this whole thing is really confusing. So at first I thought it would be UAC or Russia trying to buy out non-Russian organizations and take control of this thing. But it turns out it's the other way around, that Leonardo will own some minor percentage of this firm at this point. But then UAC will sell its 49% stake to Venice-based SJI, or sorry, they will be selling it to UAE-based Mark AB Capital Investments, who then plans to somehow open up a production facility in the UAE and start churning these things out by 2025 and produce 10 to 15 aircraft per year, which I'm pretty sure is more than the Superjet Corporation built ever for this aircraft because nobody wanted it and they couldn't ever get production rates up very high. And they, they, they I'm reading this from a Flight Global article written by Dominic Perry, but they suggest that there's a, a market of a minimum of 240 aircraft in passenger freighter and VIP versions, mostly destined for the UAE and Indian markets. And I just don't see it. I don't understand this. There is the notable problem of they would need to source a new engine. The SAM-146 turbofans from Powerjet, notably another joint venture between Saffron and France and and, uh, Russia's domestic Russian firm, they can't use those engines anymore. So they would have to find new ones. And I, I just don't understand how literally any of this makes any sense and why anyone would spend hundreds of millions of dollars to repurpose an aircraft that nobody wanted when it was new. I mean, do you want my take on it? I do. That's why you co-host this podcast with me. (laughs) Fair, fair. My take is that UAC wants some money and they have found a way to get either a willing participant in this cash funneling scheme or somebody they've magically convinced some sucker with hundreds of millions of dollars, this is what they should do. This to me sounds like UAC trying to take the cash and run. I don't think they're actually going to restart this production. Money laundering to inject money into Russia? Or is this just find a witting idiot to buy this thing? Because I would believe either. They are both extremely probable. I think there's a decent chance that one of those is the correct answer here. I would be very, very surprised, very, very, very surprised if we ever saw this jet remanufactured or or manufacturing restarted outside of Russia. Yes. But then the article goes on to say that, well, Russia can't afford to not be able to produce this aircraft. So somehow, I don't understand it again, the market for the SSJ will split and that they will still be making a de-westernized version of the SSJ completely made of Russian components while this other non-Russian SSJ also exists in the market? How does that even work? How is Russia going to build the SSJ if UAC has exited the joint venture. I, I don't I don't understand at all. They have all the parts, the tooling, the whatever. So they're just they, gonna build they, they like, just the, keep building the counterfeit SSJ? Like well, <laughs> I don't know if it's counterfeit, but it's their de-westernified version. 
okay. Yeah, that's what I said. All right, whatever. We'll keep an eye on it so that I can eat my words if they do, in fact, start manufacturing super jets. I don't think the risk of that is high. Okay. So, Norse, which is definitely not the reincarnation of Norwegian's long haul, Mm -hmm. has absolutely not just announced a bunch of routes that Norwegian long haul used to operate. Weird. They've definitely not done that. Yeah, the differences between what was Norwegian long haul and what is now Norse is just, you hold them up to each other. I wouldn't even recognize them as the same type of business. Definitely not. not close. Definitely not the same thing. But if you are in the market for a flight to uh, specifically seeming Gatwick this coming summer, there should be no shortage of relatively inexpensive tickets as long as you're willing to put up with the shenanigans that plagued Norwegian in the past. But definitely don't plague Norse. No. Well, not yet. Operationally, they have not been that problematic, but we have yet to see them push their fleet and their scheduling capability full tilt like we saw in peak Norwegian where everything kind of came burning down. Yeah. So we'll see what happens this summer. Stay tuned. Okay. All right. We're finally there. IAG has finally agreed to acquire full control of Air Europa. So good. Done. That's fun. IAG being the parent company of British Airways and Iberia. And who else? And Aer Lingus. Aer Lingus. I always forget about Aer Lingus. And Welling. Level. And Level. And Level level operated by Welling, marketed by British Airways. Shared (laughs) by (laughs) Aer Lingus. I don't know. What we're trying to say is that IAG kind of has a stranglehold on Spanish aviation now, which is, I don't know how the EU is letting this go through, but apparently Air Europa will remain an independent brand to some degree. But that's a lot of lot of aircraft in Spain that all rolls up to IAG now. Yep. So we'll see how that one pans out. But I'm glad that they've done the deal because I'm done talking about it. Okay. Because it's just taking forever. It is. But these well, things I mean, st- this COVID thing kind of happened. So. Ah, uh, yeah. There's yeah. that, I guess. The, the deal was originally announced like February 2020. So. Right. Things changed. Yeah. Okay, so that was the neutral section. And now for some good news. First up is some time savings. So El Al's flights used to have to fly all the way around the Arabian Peninsula because they couldn't fly over Saudi Arabia. They couldn't fly over the UAE. They couldn't fly over Oman. And now with the ability this week to begin flying over Oman, they're cutting some time off of their flights. The flight between Tel Aviv and Bangkok now is three hours shorter. Yeah, that's good for everyone involved. So previously, let's see, there were some flights on February 22nd, 10 hours, 4 minutes. February 23rd, 10 hours and 10 minutes. 10 hours and 20 minutes on the 25th. And then suddenly on the 26th, 7 hours and 47 minutes. And then 7 hours and 50 minutes. 7 hours, 39 minutes just yesterday. So that is a pretty significant amount of time savings for everyone on board this aircraft, less fuel use, just everything good about this. Good news all around. Good stuff. Yeah. 
Sticking in the region, Egypt Air took delivery of its first A321neo and also becomes the first operator in Africa to take delivery of the A321neo. So congratulations to Egypt Air on that auspicious occasion. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice looking livery, a nice looking aircraft. I've always liked that livery and it looks good with the raccoon eyes on the Neo. It does. It does. So they've got their first aircraft and they've got a few more on order. Late last week, early this week, the Northern Lights were very, very strong over a very large portion of the Northern Latitudes. And you could, I think even last night, you could walk outside in suburban London and see them. But a few flights decided that, hey, why let all the passengers on one side of the plane have all the fun? Let's do an orbit. We'll do a 360-degree turn so that we can let people on the other side see that as well. A couple EasyJet flights did it and a Finnair flight did it so that everyone on the entire flight could see the Northern Lights. So I thought that was really cool of the airlines and the airlines were both encouraging of it. EasyJet actually operates some Northern Lights tour flights. They do a few of those to raise money for charity. One of the charities that they raised money for just earlier this month or late last month in February, was called Aerobility, which helps people with disabilities learn how to pilot an aircraft. So whatever disability you may have, they work with you specifically to make sure that you can pilot an aircraft, learn how to pilot an aircraft. So I thought that was really cool. That that they were raising money for that. So all around, just a heartwarming story. Some people were upset because I guess people really like to be upset about certain things. What is there possibly to be upset about with this? (sighs) There was the, let's see, there were two things. The first one was saying, oh, it was dangerous. What, the orbit it, that took like yes. probably 25 seconds to do? Yes. Yes. Cool. That, that was, yeah, that was one of the things. And it was very clear to anyone suggesting that had no idea how communication works between aircraft and air traffic control. And, you know, they clear those things before they do them. And then the second one was, which is a little more understandable, but not really, is that a waste of fuel. So being in the air an extra 30 seconds is worth letting the passengers see that. Yes, I would say Uh, so. So I'm sticking with this is all part of the good news thing. And then to end the show, we want to give a special shout out to a listener down in Australia, down from us, I suppose, in Australia, Blake Hogan, a young man who's passionate about aviation and sent us in a great photo of a pair of Virgin Australia aircraft and was just excited to share it. So Blake, thanks very much for listening to the podcast. Thanks very much for sending in your photos, which leads me to say, if anyone else is traveling or or has something that they think, hey, that was really cool and want to share it either for the show or not, send us an email, podcast at fr24.com. Let us know if you want us to include something on the show or if you're just saying hi, which is perfectly fine too. And we read all of those and I thoroughly enjoy getting messages like this from folks who are just as into aviation as Jason and I are. So this has been episode 205 of Ad Talk. Thank you so very much for listening. And we'll be back next week after Jason and I get a little rest and relaxation. I am Ian Pechnik here as always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening. 